Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. And welcome to my independence report. Thank you for being here. I have been looking forward to this interview for quite some time uh, because I believe that this particular topic that we are going to talk about today is uh, in, in our time, certainly, but this goes all the way back to the 70s and people that, that you'll know by their name like um, Jim Jones and David Koresh, and in this case, the Reverend Moon uh, that operated cults. I want to welcome uh, uh, Lisa Cohn to the, to the show. She's written the book To the Moon and Back because she and her, well, I'll let her tell the story. Tell us about the book and uh, where it came from, Lisa. So thank you for having me, Kevin. It's wonderful to be here. To start, the way I describe my childhood is the best seats I ever had at Madison Square Garden were at my mother's wedding. And the best cocaine I ever had was from my father's friend, the judge. So I did, I grew up and he's laughing. Yes, yes, and they're both true. So I grew up in the Unification Church, the Moonies. I was best friends with Moon's kids. My mom joined when I was 10 and my mom got married on July 1st, 1982 with 2,075 other couples. And, you know, and back then, you know, the garden seats were like red on the bottom and then orange and then yellow and green and blue up in the sky like a rainbow. And I had red seats when my mom got married. What a waste. And on the other hand, Moon was my messiah. I believed I lived it. That was my life. And but I lived with my dad in New York City's East Village in the 1970s before it was cool and it was just seedy. And when I left the church and started my foray into drugs, yes, he had a friend who was a judge who had incredible cocaine. And so this is the, the two crazy worlds that I and my older brother went back and forth in. And that's what the book is about. It's about life before getting into the church and why it truly was a haven at that moment for us, living in the church and then trying to pull myself out of it and what that actually does to your psyche when you experience something like that. So. For those of you who may not be familiar with Reverend Moon, he was a minister in Korea, and he uh, uh, promoted himself as the Messiah. And uh, he built the Unification Church. And Lisa's right. I remember seeing this on the news where you would have 2,000 couples in a large auditorium that would get married all at the same time, and they were all married under his leadership and under the auspice of the unification church and um and at that time back in the way back in the 70s there was this raging debate as to whether or not it was a cult or whether it was actually a a religious uh um, religious movement yes yeah yes and uh so there was that debate w what did you determine over time which was it so it's a really actually a fascinating and multi-layered question because many people won't use the word cult. But the first thing I'm going to tell you is when you're in a cult, you know you're not in a cult. Nobody ever joins a cult. Like when I was a Mooney, the Hare Krishnas, they were whacked, right? <laughs> they believed in something really crazy and stupid. We had the truth. So one, 
when people join, they join a good thing in their brain. And when you're in it, you know, most of the way while you're in it, right, that it's good and it's true. And only when you go out, you're like, wait a second, right? And so whereas some people won't call it a cult, I do. Some people have a hard time with that word, but you can easily call it an extreme extremist situation, an extremist group, an extreme group. Uh, there's a model called the bite model about cults, and it's when they control your behavior, information, thinking, and emotion. And I guarantee you, absolutely all of those were controlled, and that is a way to control people. So to me, a cult is something where it controls you in this way. It's extremely extremism. It's us versus them. It's good versus evil. And you believe so fervently there's no way to see anything on the outside other than that's sinful and wrong. Now, when he professed to be the Messiah, or the, the I guess it would be the next coming of the Christ, did, yes. he, did he believe that he was Jesus Christ incarnate? So what happened when Moon was 15 on Easter morning, he was praying in the mountains, and Jesus appeared to him and said, I should not have died. I did not come to die. I came to marry and have a family and bring the kingdom of heaven on earth, but I failed in my mission. Please excuse me, everyone who believes in him. Failed in my mission, so I need you to take this mission on and to be the second coming of Jesus, right? To be the Messiah, to, to marry, to have children, to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. And apparently I think Moon said no three times, and the third time he said, okay, fine, I'll do it. Um, and, you know, when, when my book came out, I was on Megyn Kelly, back when there was a Megyn Kelly show, and when they, when they interviewed me for the backstory, the producer said, do you think Moon believed he was the Messiah? And I do, I don't know, right? I do believe by the time I got there, he probably did believe in some of his own stuff, right? Because if enough people bow to you and enough people tell you like that you're the Messiah, enough people take off their shoes and do whatever you say and treat you that way, you probably become to believe your own Whatever it's called. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I don't believe it was like, I don't know that he believed it in the beginning. I don't, I know that there are a lot of ways the church was founded that I'm even now just finding out and don't know all the details of, of where it really wasn't even a religious movement. And it was about a lot of other things and there was a lot of money and there was a lot of power and all that is true. But I do believe he thought he was rather special. When he came forward, it's, see, it's, it's odd. Now, do you think, it's just crossed my mind. Do you think he had a mental illness of some kind? Uh, I have no idea. Um, diagnosical? I don't know. Uh, I do believe that he was brilliant, right? I do believe that that's it, much of that is in his family. Um, I would call him a narcissist, right? Yeah, and he certainly was a master manipulator. Master manipulator. Uh, you know, as I... As I said to you, right, someone said to me recently, did you mind that Moon and his family lived in opulence, right? Lavish, lavish, wonderful, beautiful estates and cars and everything you could possibly want. And members lived in extreme poverty. And the response is, of course not. He's the Messiah. That's what he should have, right? And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I cannot diagnose him. I'm not one who can, but I do know I do know in looking back that, you know, the way people are indoctrinated was very well thought out and planned. The way they they took your mind and carved your mind and contained your mind was very well thought and planned. The way as a child, a developing brain was carved and controlled and, you know, held in a spot was, 
I said to my mom something about how my brain was intentionally carved. And she said, do you think it was intentional? And I said, well, I don't think they thought I'm going to say this because it'll do that. But they knew they had to control us. And so, for example, we were literally taught that if we ever questioned anything, it was Satan and evil spirits inside us trying to win us back from God. God, whose heart has been broken for 6,000 years. God, who's crying and suffering. God, who needs you never to let him down. So as soon as you think anything for yourself, any critical thoughts whatsoever, you pray because you know Satan is inside you. It's brilliant, it's brilliant. I still have a hard time thinking for myself sometimes because my brain was so boxed. Now, I will not ask you to comment on this. I'll just make this a little brief comment. And that is that that particular set of of belief structures has been going on for about 2000 years or more. Mm -hmm. If you can control people into believing that they need to follow your instructions or you're of the devil yes. in the middle ages, people were put to death for that very thing in the yes. Inquisition and some of the other stuff that, that went on there. Yes. And it was, and so it's nothing new, but what I was thinking was, and, and of course, Moses went and talked to the burning bush and, and stuff. So it would make sense that Reverend, but I just, I can't get my mind around that. He, he said, well, let's see, I got nothing better to do today. I think I'm going to go up into the hills and then I'm going to come back and tell the story about how Jesus, of course, you know, um, um, Smith the, from the uh, Mormons did the same, virtually mm -hmm. the same thing mm -hmm. that he had a vision from God and so did Paul had a vision from God and and so they take that and then they can manipulate that into form it into a way that they then can solicit control of others because I have had direct contact with the divine and this is and so that makes me special and I'm actually taking it maybe to that he's a messiah was a step further than a lot of people have gone but still yeah. It was, it was, it was crazy. Now, what I'm going to share with you may be true. I don't know what stuff I've heard of this people of research about the founding of the church, right? So the founding of the church, I do believe it may be true, right? I haven't deeply researched it myself, but it was actually potentially founded as a sex cult. Ah. And then and there were a lot of them in Korea. There's this belief that you can have purification through if someone is connected with God and you have sexual intercourse with them, that will purify you, right? And that's how it's passed along. Right. And so there's this story that this is how it began and that he actually went to prison for that. Right. Into the communist prison camps. And in there he learned a lot of the brainwashing techniques. And he also connected with people who wanted him to come to America and fight against communism and infiltrate in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of different theories some people will say them be true. Again, I don't know this, but you, there are places where you can look like, how well do you know your moon? And there's really places you can research the people who've researched what actually happened at the founding of this church. But by the time it got to us, it was a religion. It was God. He was the Messiah. He was, you know, perfect ideal. He had had a wife. They had perfect ideal, special children. Yes. So, so go back to this this uh, purification thing that that you can get pure because that's that's a hell of a pickup line. I want to. Could you explain that one? <laughs> Think more of me and you'll be pure. Yeah, <laughs> works. I don't know. Yeah. I yeah. So, so you get pure by having sex with somebody, and then you're passing on your purity to them. Yes. I wonder, I don't think that'll work in a bar, but I can sure give it a shot, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> but some know how it goes. 
<laughs> Some, somebody decided that was a really good idea. And the, th- the, the, the scary part about that is, is that somebody bought it. Yeah. And so and you, we talked about this really briefly when we were first talking, right? But here's the deal. We are all susceptible. And I've been corrected. So unless you are psychotic, a sociopath, or already in an extreme situation, our brains are extremely susceptible for it. Because as human animals, we crave certainty, purpose, and community. And I promise you, it is going to give you a certainty beyond belief, a purpose that fills you, you never question why you're here, and a community you will never replicate. It is the most intoxicating drug to know you have the truth. Absolutely. Even if it's not true, when you know it to be true, it is the most powerful drug anywhere. And I will tell you that when you say this to someone who's been in, they'll be like, yeah, absolutely. It is powerful and beautiful and so fulfilling, even when it's a lie. Recently, I I witnessed a, uh, or I watched, didn't witness, I watched a uh, documentary on Jonestown where 900 people died. Some took their own lives. Some some of their lives were taken. Yes. And it is amazing to me that that group think like that can exist to that extent where at the end, after he killed the senator or the representative, one of the two, um, they came back and they said, they're coming for us, so we all need to die and go to heaven now. Yeah. And and to protect and and so they drank the Kool Aid, and where where that 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 expression comes from, uh, they they're drinking the Kool Aid, um, and of course he shot himself or he what had somebody shoot him, right. and and stuff. But it was and David Koresh the same thing. He had people in there that were willing to uh, be burned to death to die in his. It, it's just it's just amazing to me the amount of control. That, that we can give our, away from ourselves and give to somebody else and feel really good about it. And feel really good about it. So a couple of thoughts. First of all, I have made it my own personal mission when anybody, because they use drink the Kool-Aid in the corporate or world often. And every time someone does, I'm like, excuse me, do you know where that comes from? You might not want to say it when you exactly. really think about where it comes from, right? Because I do believe that has to stop personally. Um, but When you believe that deeply, and again, our brains have all these biases. Our biases work to make the world kind of safer for us and more understandable. So we have confirmation bias, which makes us only see things that confirm what we already believe, right? And so we have all these, we have, I have a bias that lets me know that I'm not biased, I'm objective, the rest of you are biased, right? But I'm objective. So we have all these ways our brains work. So again, Thought reform happens in very specific ways, except for those of us born and or raised. That's a whole different situation. But when someone joins, it happens in a very specific way. And your brain slowly begins to believe what they've taught you to believe. And once you believe it, you can say the sky is blue and I'll be great. And tomorrow you'll be like, it's actually green. God wants it to be green. Now I know it looks the same. If you can't see it, there's something wrong with you because it's green. And you'll be like, oh my God, there's something wrong with my brain because the sky still looks blue with me. I mean, our brain's work to do it and and it's there's fear there's community and love there's a thought if i'm ostracized or if i don't believe anymore i'm letting us was like i'm letting god down i'm breaking god's heart there's all these different ways and again not everybody's killed themselves at jonestown right they killed other people yes some people drank kool-aid and laid on their kids and smothered them 
some people gave it to the kids, but even the adults who wanted to get out couldn't get out, right? Because at some point the community keeps you in there to protect the community as well. So it's, but the scary thing is, is our brains want this and hold to this, cling to this. How do you feel that the internet is contributing to this this issue that that we have that's growing in America today? Well, I think it's actually both, right? I definitely think it's contributing because information is out there. False information is out there. People don't know when they're getting false information. Uh, people can go down a rabbit hole and believe something and people can be sought out and found and indoctrinated, totally brought in. I also think that in some ways it can be helpful because there is a way for people to see some of the truth about these. And even for some members, right? If when they're really controlling information in many organizations, they don't even let you have a computer. Like in some, in some cultic groups or some extreme groups, they don't let anyone ever have a computer, any have an internet connection, have any connection with the outside. Because as soon as you see something there, you'll be like, wait, right? You might start to question. So it, it can save us, but it's absolutely making people more, more vulnerable, more isolated, and more easily attractable and easier to fall into, again, false beliefs because they're, they're, they're out there and they're easy to find. Like some that, you know, we could talk about that are happening in our country right now. Yeah. There are, there are uh, sites that you can go to and people that you can talk to that uh, believe a certain thing that they believe fervently or even more insidious they're using it for hits and to make money and to control people that they believe that they can control so it's the same thing going forward but but and then and then with the internet what they're discovering is a lot of people will only look at things that they already believe so it makes their belief even stronger than it was rather than being um um interested in looking at both sides of an issue they'll, they'll only look at sites that verify what they already believe absolutely on, on all sides yes go you were going to say something i interrupted you no that's right i was just going to say that's dangerous yeah and and not only that again our brains so they've done research where you can have an article about abortion right and you can have someone who's pro-choice read it and someone who's anti-abortion read it and each one will read it as if it supports their beliefs because not only will I only go to the news station or the internet sites or whatever that agrees with me, even if I go someplace else, my brain doesn't even see, take in whatever, anything that disagrees with what I already know to be true or believe to be true. So it's, we, are, we are fighting against our own biology when we try not to believe things that are given to us in this way. I just made it sound really scary, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm just curious. Why is that? Why are we, why do we operate that way? Is that, is that just by our biology or does it come from our past or, or our growing up? You would probably, well, so yes. So definitely it is biology, right? Our, we have evolved in order to stay safe, right? And ways to stay safe is to find people who believe like you, find people who like you, find people who accept you, know, know that you're true. We want to know, I mean, we want to know that we're not insane, that we're not unstable. So we like to know that what we believe to be true is absolutely true. So there's all these ways our brain works to, you know, keep us, keep us okay with where we are and, where, and who we are. And so it, it really, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of biases we have in our brain and they all work to protect us, but they all limit us and actually hurt us. And then you add into it the way 
we grew up. So you asked what I do before. So I own a leadership consulting and executive coaching firm. And um, one of the things from my own experience in my past that I bring is when we are young, right? Even if our world is completely safe, there are parts of it that feel a little bit unstable and unsafe. And some of us live through actually unsafe trauma, horrific situations. So as a kid, you see these situations and you think, if the world is safe, that's terrifying. If the world is unsafe, that's terrifying. So it must be me. There must be something wrong with me because the world has to be safe or otherwise, what am I going to do? So I kind of look at myself and I think what's wrong with me. And I come up with coping mechanisms, belief patterns, you know, ways I see the world. And, and when you grow up in an extreme situation like I do, we were literally given very specific ways and carving brain carvings to see the world. And you come up with these coping mechanisms, you know, fight, flight, freeze kind of things that you learn to, it's for some people, it literally saves your life. So then you get into adult and these are the behaviors you have, which you may not need anymore, but you're still doing them because you still see the world in the way you had to see the world as a kid. So it's, so it's yes, yes, all of our brains are like that. And yes, the way we grow up actually influences us to keep doing things that get in our own way, if that makes any sense. It makes way too much sense because, it, and, and it, it really, and what that means to me is that see, at one time I thought, well, you know, somebody that goes to a cult and believes in the cult, they must have been damaged uh, to begin with. And, but that's just not the case. It can, it can happen to anyone at any time. Yes. As someone I know well said, all it takes is to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Like if I'm in whatever moment of mood and I meet you and you invite me back for a dinner and it sounds really great and I like what you're talking about and you invite me in for the weekend and I go and I learn these things and everybody's wonderful and I stay another week and then they slowly do these things to you and then you are you're in. It's just all it takes is to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe I'm a little more open and vulnerable to it for whatever reason. There are there are people in cultic situations who have completely stable childhoods, lives, everything. And there are people who are very broken and have very broken situations. And it is in, as, like a haven in some ways. It is better. When I, when I wrote the book, someone reached out to me. And he was like, someone, I don't know. How can you say this? The church was a haven. My mom was schizophrenic. My dad was alcoholic. The church was an entirely wonderful, safe place. True. For him, it was better. Honestly, by the time we got there, my brother and I, it was a haven for us. It was a wonderful place at first for us, but it, but it wasn't, but it felt that way. Right. So, so yes, it's a haven for some people. Yes. Some people are damaged and yes, not necessarily. So, and I know you go through this in the book, but there was a point in time to when you started to doubt. Yeah. Tell us about that. So what happens? <laughs> so again, it is, I live with my dad, believe in my mom and the church and moon. And I spend all my free time whenever I can, every week and every holiday, always at the church, even when my mom was far away. And um, then the summer between my, uh, my junior and senior year of high school, my dad sent me to music camp. I'm convinced to this day to keep me away from the church because he actually never spent money on us. So he sends me to music camp and I become friends with people who for the first time known to me are gay and or bisexual which is a huge sin in my puritanical church. So I write to my mom and I'm like, what should I, what should I do? I love these people. What should I do? And she writes back and she says, they're sinful, they're evil. 
You know, you can either convert them or just stay away from them. They're dangerous. And for the first time, it doesn't make sense to me. Like I, I can't, I can't wrap my head around it. And again, as I said, we were literally taught that if you ever question, it's Satan invading you. So I'm questioning, and I know I'm invaded by Satan, and I'm terrified. But I'm so I'm I'm starting to really be like, oh, you know, torn torn, torn apart. And then I come home, and as I, I may have mentioned, not only in the church, but I'm best friends with Moon's kids, right? And they're the Messiah's children. They're as holy and special as they can be. And then those huge weddings are called blessings. And when members are blessed in marriage by Moon, they were original sin was removed from them. So their children are blessed children. And they're holy, no original sin, very special. So there's true children and then blessed children, and then there's sinful Lisa. And so I'm best friends with the true children and very good friends with some of the blessed children. And I come home from music camp and one of my friends who's a blessed child, 16 year old blessed child had been seduced by our Sunday school teacher. Yes, had been seduced by our Sunday school teacher. It's having an affair with him. And in order to keep anyone from noticing, she decides to spread rumors about me. And she says, I wanna sleep with all the men, which is a sin, right? Of course, in our pure, puritanical cult. So she spreads these rumors, Moon hears the rumors, believes the rumors, and makes a decree that only blessed children can play with the true children so that I'm never allowed near his daughter again. So I go to my senior year of high school, knowing I'm invaded by Satan because I'm questioning and knowing that the Messiah has banished me because he knows I'm evil. So I'm not feeling so good, right? And I, I go to senior year of high school and I decide, um, okay, you joined as a 10-year-old. You followed your mother in. It was a child. You couldn't make an adult decision. So now as a 17-year-old, you're going to pull back and look at the outside and make a fully complete adult decision to go back and never question again. You can't question. You have to commit your life. So adult at 17. So I, I start, I pull back and I start hanging out on the weekends with my dad. He loves that. I start becoming closer friends with people at school, high school, and I'm getting more and more tormented and more and more confused and feeling more unconditional love on the outside, but not like I'm just, it's, it's very hard to leave. And then I start experimenting with alcohol and I get really stupid drunk at a party and a boy kisses me and then I have a boyfriend, which is a huge sin in my puritanical cult. And you know, all hell breaks loose and people are stopping me on street corners and screaming at me and you're gonna die and you're gonna fall and you're gonna break God's heart and everything is like huge, huge enough that my poor seven-year-old boyfriend proposes to me. We're 17, he's like, marry me. And I'm like, I can't. Like go off to college, he stays in New York. I go off to Cornell up in Ithaca, up in upstate New York and I determine I will break up with him and I don't. And then that, I mean, that starts my leaving, but my absolute torment, my freshman year, I almost jump off the bridge because it is Cornell. My sophomore year, I become hugely anorexic and I'm like 40 pounds less than I am now. My junior year, I do a hell of a lot of cocaine, including with the judge. And my senior year, I just get in more and more and more abusive relationships for a long time, like punishing myself for leaving the Messiah. Because when I left, I knew he was the Messiah. I just didn't want to do it. Many people, like many, especially those who grow up, by the time they get to a certain point, they're like, this is stupid, I'm out. But I, I, you know, I, I believed, I still knew him to be true. I just didn't want to do it anymore. And so I, I deserved to die for, um, for my inability to be strong enough for God. So that's <laughs> the long story kind of short. Oh my goodness gracious. You know, I was just thinking when you start, when you start talking about the original sin stuff. Yeah that that <clears throat> you want to talk about a brilliant strategy yeah 
for keeping people in line yeah. is for those of you who may not know what original sin is and the concept of original sin, that is Adam and Eve yeah. when they took the apple and, and Adam took the bite and, and against God's wishes. That is the original original sin and for every religion since then has used that as because of that original sin we're all sinners and but if you can find a way to according to the messiah to get to to lose that original sin yeah. so that you are now perfect because you're following the rules in a certain way yeah. that's a brilliant strategy for keeping brilliant strategy on. and in my church and it's not only my church right but that the fall of man that apple was sex. So Lucifer, the angel, seduced Eve and had sex with Eve, and Eve seduced Adam and had sex with Adam. And that's why we are all broken. And God, God has been trying for thousands and thousands of years, but he needs man to stand up and do something. And everybody, Noah fails, and Abraham fails, and Moses fails, and Jesus fails, and you don't fail God. It's a lot to carry. <laughs> it, it is. And, and that's that's a huge burden to have. It's a huge burden to have. And it's a brilliant way to keep somebody under control. It is. Well, what are you going to do? And in your case, it's like, I look, look, pal, I know you're the Messiah, but I got this other stuff I want to go do. And all right, I'm going to go to hell, but I'll, I'll deal with that later yeah. uh, kind of thing. But but it but it affected you to your core in all kinds of ways. You know, and I've been out almost, almost 40 years, right? I left, I've been out almost 40 years. And only since the book came out, did I really find the, the cult survivor community? And have I really realized, like, I'm good. I've worked, I've had therapy. I've done a lot of stuff. I dealt with a lot. But only have I, in the recent past, really realized how much it is in me and carved me and affects me, you know, my, you know, when we joined, we were living with my mom, my parents, but very young, we we're living with my mom and my grandfather. And my mom got more and more involved. And she finally sat my brother and I down and she said, I think I need to be more involved. What should I do? And we said, you should leave. So she left us. Right. And for years, all they would say to us is, thank you for living with you're so lucky to live without your mom. And so I knew if I ever missed my mom, I was sinful and satanic and awful. So I learned never to miss, never to want, never to need, never to like, you just, you, you, as a kid, like you hear these things and you learn these things and man, I'm almost 58 years old and I'm still, and I may always be still unraveling some of what it did. And, and then there's the stuff with my dad. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a bed of roses with my dad, right? There's a lot of all that stuff on that side too. So you have the two of them, but the way the cult affected my brain is it's, I'm still, I'm still unraveling it. It's true. And it's it. You don't know that what you don't know, so you don't know you're unraveling it until it until it rises up to meet you, and then you have to deal with it. You don't even know. So, long story short, got out of college, did a lot of other really destructive things, and got engaged to someone who drank a hell of a lot and was mean. And someone pointed me to Al-Anon, that twelve-step program for those of us with our arms clasped around the alcoholic. And I literally went to my first meeting saying, thinking, tell me if he's an alcoholic. There's no way I would ever be with an alcoholic. I'm way too smart and functional for that. Please excuse me, people, right? I was just, right? So first of all, my dad drank and drugged every day of my life. My grandfather was an AA. There's addiction all over my dad's family. And I grew up in a cult. 
That's right. I did. Right. But like what you don't like, I knew my childhood was weird and I knew I could make people laugh, but you, you only know you don't what you don't know what you don't know when you only know what you know. So I never actually realized what it really was. Like even when I left and when I left, I just closed the door and I was never going to look at it again. And when I got engaged to the alcoholic and really crashed and burned, and I ended up in therapy, a therapist said to me, you know, you have to integrate the church into your psyche in order to heal. And I was like, no blank and way. No, the only reason I'm standing is because I've never looked at it and I will never look at it. Obviously, I have at this point. But at that point, anytime I thought about it, I knew I deserved to die because I left the Messiah and broke God's heart. So uh, it's yeah, it's wacky. What a, what a heavy burden to put on a teenage girl. Um, which and, and that it's amazing because when I was growing up, and this is during that same time period, we and I are about the same age. I'm yeah. old, and uh, um, there were cults that were springing up all yep. over the place. Uh, there were charismatic movements. There were yep. stuff, and, and and guys were were talking about I'm the guy, I'm the I'm the way and the life, and and stuff, and and we're going to get high on the Lord, and I'm the I'm the one, I'm the I'm the one, the conduit if you will, towards all this stuff. I never got involved with that because I thought it was a bunch of hooey, but but yeah. I know lots of people that yeah. were not very confident in themselves. They maybe had a drug problem. Yeah. They maybe were trying to clean themselves up, and they they needed a sense of community. Yeah. This is what they were given was a sense of community. Absolute community you'll never replicate. Absolutely never replicate, yeah. As long as you stay in line, they'll do anything. Absolutely. When you're part of the, when you're part of it, they will do anything. And you're always there when you walk away. I mean, there are many organizations where people are actually shunned, right? Like the Jehovah's Witnesses. If someone, if a kid leaves the Jehovah's Witnesses, say they don't believe anymore, they can sit at the dinner table and no one will talk to them. Family members will cross the street and not look at you again if you leave. And there's many organizations like that, right? Where you absolutely, especially those of us, again, born and raised, you absolutely lose your family, your friends, your community, the way you live your life, your everything, right? It's, 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 it's brilliant. There was a guy. He wrote a science fiction novel. <laughs> and you know where I'm going. And he wrote a science fiction novel, and somehow, some way, he became a uh, um, a religious figure, and he founded the Church of Scientology. Yeah. And the search of the, the Church of Scientology is one of those that it's easy to get into; mm -hmm. it's difficult to get out of. Yep. Yep. It's 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 frightening that that we can subject ourselves. Well. If you, you can go, go all the way back to Hitler for mind control. Yep. What he did to the the German people as far yep. as because there were some good people that did some horrible things. Absolutely. And it was very possible for good people to do very horrible things, unfortunately. And and so I I I appreciate I, first of all, I am grateful you wrote this book. The book is called To the Moon and Back. And please pick it up. It is it is worth the read. Um, it, it was a national bestseller when it first came out. Correct. It, it's it's done all right. It's done all right. Yeah, yeah it's done all right. Like over here. Yeah, culture and on national TV shows. Yes, and, and stuff. And I appreciate you coming here and talking with little absolutely, old me. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, but let's let's segue that into something that's really really positive, and that's what you're doing now. Thank you. Yeah. So 
it's funny because people ask me why I did it. And honestly, I don't know. Like if you, one of, one of the legacies of my childhood is such a perfectionist. Don't even know such drive. Don't even know if you put something in front of me, I will do it. Even if I die, no matter what, and I'll do it really well. Right. It's part of how I'm carved. It's not all good. So I'm like, I, when I crawl into Al-Anon, as my brother says, when you go into these rooms and there's hundreds of people with these really tough lives and you tell your story and their jaws all drop, you go, oh, <laughs> okay. Is I guess, oh, all right. Uh. And people keep, <laughs> like, oh, who knew? And people keep saying, you should write a book, you should write a book, you should write a book. And so over 20 years ago, I sat down and started writing a half memoir, half self-help. This is what happened. It messed me up. I got better. You can too, because I'm a coach and I want to give hope. And uh, long story short, got so many amazing rejections that basically said, amazing story, decent writer. You can't do this because you're not famous enough. Where will they put you in Barnes and Noble? You can't do this hybrid book. And in like 2000, 2009, uh, agent called me and said, write the memoir and I'll represent you. And I wrote the memoir and she couldn't take me on when I was finished. And so then I, I was just driving to get it done. And I just kept going and it got published by a publisher in 2018. And since then, I've realized why I've done it right? Because there are three messages that are hugely important to me. One is, as we've been talking about, extremist situations exist. They're prevalent. They are intoxicating and they are dangerous. They are absolutely dangerous just for the individual, for our society. And there are people in certain situations who are armed and will kill probably if told to. Okay. Second, for anyone who feels hopeless or damaged beyond repair, there is hope and you are not damaged. Now, when the book came out, I still think I somehow thought I was damaged by everything that happened to me. I have damage, I have scars, right? I absolutely do. I can go really dark places, but I'm not damaged. And that shift is huge. So there really is hope. Find a community, reach out, find someone. There's an organization. If you are in a cultic situation, look at uh, I Got Out. I got out, hashtag I got out. It's really a safe place for people to come together and get out of these situations, right? And I also know that while my story is unique, only my brother has this two weird things, two lives together, the themes are universal. And so many of us are walking around with shame that we shouldn't have over things that happen to us and around us, right? So we really need to not live in that shame, but to step out and have a life. And that's the third, right? So I, from the work I do and from my own life, I do really believe that as a species, we're way too hard on ourselves and we just need a huge dose of self-compassion and self-love. And yes, I am the executive coach who walked around Fortune 50 C-suites talking about self-compassion and self-love and leading with love and loving yourself more because when I can love myself first and most, and granted, I was taught that was selfish and wrong. But I've learned that when I do something that I feel guilty about that feels selfish, it's probably the best thing to do because it's taking care of me. And when I can fill myself up with the love that I need, I can give anything to the world. So extremist situations exist. There is hope and love yourself more. Those are my three messages. And you are an executive coach. Yes. And uh, what's the name of your business again? Chatsworth Consulting Group. And you talk to corporate people all over the world, don't you? Corporate people all over the world, not-for-profits, the whole slew. We work with really amazing organizations, helping people become, we call it more thoughtful, present, intentional, authentic. Who am I? How do I be my best self? How are the crazy things that happened in my life or my psyche or my last job getting in my way? How do I get out of that? 
negativity and show up, you know, embracing life, embracing other people, getting along, making a better world. You know, I'm convinced I've been in business a long time and I've been doing this stuff for a long time. I'm convinced that when somebody works with someone like you, it's not only good for their soul, it's good for their psyche, but it's good for the bottom line. It is. It is. Raises the productivity, it lowers their turnover, it causes the people to want to be there when you treat them a certain way rather than the old way of doing business. And and, and it, it, there's a measure of, of love and compassion and things that need to be a part of that, right? Absolutely. Or I probably wouldn't keep getting called back to <clears throat> companies to work with really big people. You know, but yeah, absolutely. It really, you know, you know, when I, we can come from, this is the, the, the really, I talk about this in the corporate world, but we can come from love or we can come from fear, right? And when we come from fear, it's limiting. We see no possibility. We see evil. We see wrong. We see fight, like win, lose. We see all that. And when we can come from love and compassion, you know, I talk about love in the corporate world, appropriate love in the corporate world, right? When we can come from possibility and see the good in other people and find a way to get together and work together and to figure out where we're going together and how to get the best out of you and the best out of me, it's one, it's more fun and two, it's more productive. It's true. It's absolutely true. And, you know, the thing about uh, a CEO, I've known some and of big companies Mm -hmm. got lots of people, a couple mm -hmm. of secretaries that, mm -hmm. that it's their beck and call. They may, they buy the Christmas gifts for the wife and they, you know, they do all of that. It's, it, there's a level of power there that can insulate them from the reality of the people they have around them. And it causes them to be, it, and that can be a dysfunction all by itself. Can't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. When, uh, when, you know, we, we talk, we call it shadow of the leader, right? Which is part of that. So like, I don't need, when I'm a CEO or a C-suite or a senior vice president or whatever I am, I don't even realize the shadow I cast just when I walk into the room, the presence I take up, the energy I take up. If I say, what about this? Somebody goes and does it, right? So you, it's really being aware of that. And yeah, a lot of people lose sight of what it's really like to be on the ground, what the other, but the people are like who work for them or the lives they're actually leading. That is one of the, cool things about COVID is people have gotten more comfortable with people being human, right? And having dogs running by and kids on their lap and, you know, dishwashers being fixed and we're all like, you know, but yeah, like how, how do I, well, I really work with my clients, helping them see themselves and know themselves and then see other people, right? And see the good in other people. And then how do I connect with you in an authentic way to let your best self come out? And then how do we move like, and, and if you start with the premise that inherently we are always incompatible with other people, one-on-one -on -one, in a team, right? We are, we, it's just, life would be great if we didn't have to get you know, like other people are weird and they see things weird and they do things weird. Like we have, we all have these, like my way makes sense. Why the hell would you do it that way? Right. But when you start with that and then go, okay, take a step back. How can we go to the same place together? Inherently, most people are good and want to do a good thing. So how can we find that commonality and figure out a way to listen to each other, to hear each other, to talk to each other and move forward? Yeah, I start preaching. I love what I do. No, no. As well, you should, by the way, because what you do makes a difference for folks. There's somebody I want you to contact. His, his name is Pete Carroll, and he works for the Seattle Seahawks. He okay. has his philosophy is very similar to what yours is. He takes 
he takes individuals and he looks at each person as an individual. How can I make you or help you become the best you that you can be? Yeah. Whatever it is. Be it the cook, be it the assistant coach, be it the player, be it the punter, whatever it is, the the guy who uh, mows the lawn. How can I make you the best lawnmower? You know, and that uplifts people. It makes people want to be together and to work together for the common good rather than the the, the snipping and the arguing and the this and the fear and the hate and the and the competition. And I mean, competition is good if it's a healthy competition. Conflict is good. We need conflict. We need disagreements. We just need to do it without hating each other. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted. I wanted to before we go. And, uh, and by the way, Lisa Cohen has or Cohen has been my my guest. And and get the book to the moon and back. It's it's an incredible read. It, she has done a magnificent job of understand helping me understand what life in in being a um, a Mooney was like, that's what we used to call him. That's what I used to call him. I still call him that. Yeah. Yeah. And what a Mooney was like and, and the Reverend Moon who's passed on now, but he's left a legacy and his children are carrying it on. And, and of course they're without original sin. So they must be, pretty special special. (laughs) so i happen i i I know i would be a heretic because i happen to believe that we're all without original sin i think that's beautiful yeah i too believe that people are good and beautiful and wonderful and when we can see that life is much but i do believe in what i would say my god is a little g probably like god x they them pronouns like it's got none of that and and it's love it's i just believe in love i believe in love and goodness and joy and light and finding that in the world and finding that with other people. So yes, so there's no original sin in there. There's not you're born broken and you're evil and sinful and you need to be redeemed. I don't go there anymore. There is no, number one, there's no point to it because at what point, how good, how good is good enough and how bad is bad enough? To determine where, it, and that's why you know, just as as a, my, my preaching aside, that's why so many people die in, uh, um, die with fear because they don't know whether they've been good enough to get to heaven or to make the grade and they might not have been. And so then they're going to hell and they're going to, and it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thought overall. Horrible thought. I think it's Stephen Wright who used to tell the joke war over religion is like arguing over who has the best imaginary friend. (laughs) I love, I love that. I don't know. Like there are people who really believe they know. I believed I knew. I absolutely knew, right? I didn't believe I knew. I knew, but we don't know, right? And so, yeah, I, I, I'm standing there right with you like, what? You know, it, what if there's anything? We are all connected. We are all energy. We are all literally energy that's all the same energy and connected. Right. So how can we live in that truth and connect with people and see the good in people and reach the good in people instead of, Again, hating, fighting, all those other things we do, which is human. But like, how can we? How can we do less of that? Exactly. I like to use the the and and I want to talk about QAnon briefly, but I just want to use this example just real quick. The Seattle Seahawks, which is my football team, I figured um, you 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 figured correctly. And when you fill that stadium with people. Yeah. There are black people, there are white people, there are Asian people, there are gay people, there are old people, there are young people, but we're all there vested for the same thing. We're going to cheer on the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah. 
And so when they're playing their game and they score a touchdown, strangers are hugging. People are high-fiving. Everybody is forgiving of each other because they're one of us. They're a Seattle Seahawks fan, and we're all together. That lasts about three hours and 15 minutes. And then the game's over, and we hit the parking lot, and then we become assholes again, and and we become separate again. If we could just capture that so that we can all be together and realize that we're all one. Yeah. We're all together all the time. If we could just capture that. And I'm glad you're doing the work you're doing because you're helping to capture that. That's my hope. That's why I'm here. I really believe that's if, if my story can help other people and help spread that message, then it's all, it's all, I mean, it's all okay. Anyway, it is what it is, but it's all okay. Right. It's all good. I am, I am honored. I'm honored to touch people's lives. It's, it's a gift beyond belief. So. And with this book, you're touching people's lives and you'll never know who they are. Thank you. That's that's a special gift. Thank you. Thank you. But I'm open. Reach out to me. You want to find me? I'm really easy. You Google Lisa Cohn, K-O-H-N, you can find me. And so I love to hear from anybody who has a story that they want to share. And especially, again, if you're in an extremist situation, reach out. You are not alone. There's a way out. You can get out. There are others to help you find a way out. So. That's, I didn't know that. And I, I will say that for anybody and everybody, always and always, always. So, yeah. You know, I was going to, I was going to touch on uh, QAnon and the, and the conspiracy theories and, but we don't have time. And, and I want to leave it on a high note. And that the high note is talking about you. I want to give you the, the forum to be able to say anything to the audience that you'd like them to know before we go. Wow. So, yeah. Um, thank you. So yeah, I guess I would go back to there is hope. You are not alone. You are not damaged. Like find a community, find a way that my fourth message that I go usually say is you are awesome. You are blanking awesome, right? No matter what you've been taught, what silly stuff, what stuff has happened to you, find a way to love yourself, find someone to love you, find help, get help, get, find a therapist, find a community. There is, there is hope. One can be there. Again, I have moments that are dark, but I have such, literally, my therapist, where am I going to say this? My therapist said to me just the other day, it's amazing your capacity for joy considering the trauma you experienced, right? But everybody can have that joy and we can connect. So I feel like there should be a better, stronger message, but that's what I've got, right? Love yourself and find a way out and take care of yourself. Bless you, Lisa Cohen. That is the message for the day, and I thank you for it. Thank uh, you. you. You are just awesome. And uh, will you come back and l- let me bother you again sometime? Please, yes. Please, yes. Awesome. awesome. Hold that thought. Stay right there. I'll be right back. Perfect. Hey, and thanks for listening to this episode all the way to the end. Hey, pretty cool. Hey, don't forget to follow us so you can receive regular updates and new posts. And remember, take care of each other because each other's all we've got. See you next time on My Independence Report.